Hi there everybody, welcome back to another episode of Knowledge. I'm here today with Dr. Jeff Marlowe. Hi Jeff. Hello, how's it going? Good, thank you. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. So Jeff is an assistant professor of biology at Boston University. He's a geomicrobiologist, a national geographic explorer, but you've actually come from a more geological background, right? That's right, yeah. So my initial interest in science really was about understanding the possibility of life beyond Earth. And a lot of that starts with the geology. You know, the geology underlies the geochemistry, the geochemistry underlies the biology. So it's all kind of streaming toward this idea of how the Earth and other places beyond Earth could form a basis for, for what life is capable of. But that background has been very different from most of my biologist colleagues, <laughs> really understanding what the Earth as a basis can mean. Yes, and it must be a nice opportunity for you to bring in so many different opinions and minds and strands of research into what you do. Because sometimes when we've got, say, scientists that maybe stay in one department the whole time, it's the same it's the same voices that they hear all the time in the same areas of science. So you get this opportunity to hear more things. Absolutely, yes. Not only sort of in, in the ways that people think about systems and the ways that people work, but I think what's really striking to me is that geologists often have to go out into the world and you know get their hands dirty and they realize that things are complicated biologists many microbiologists do super important work but it's with cultures under very controlled conditions and that sort of messiness of the real world doesn't need to figure into play so when we're trying to combine these two it leads to all kinds of problems but also all kinds of ways to get creative <laughs> to, to figure it out brilliant so the reason why we've got you here today is not necessarily just to talk about biology, but to talk about biology around volcanoes. So something that a lot of people might be familiar with um, is, you know, hydrothermal vents on the seafloor where you get these black smokers that are full of microbial life and shrimps and crab colonies. But it's not the only place that we might go to look for life around volcanoes, which are normally these really desolate what what would appear life scarce places that's right in in some ways the aspects that make volcanoes so threatening are also features that make them very compelling from a biological perspective the obvious thing is that there's a heat source heat is a source of energy that can kind of mobilize different elements and nutrients that make things pretty promising when microbes for example are looking for an energy source the other are the metals, uh, and in some cases, the acids as well that come out of volcanoes. These can be sources of electrons and energy um, for some of the very first colonizing microbes on and around lava flows. So, you know, it's threatening to all sorts of life, um, certainly our built environments, but it can be kind of the start of something really interesting and really beautiful on the microbial side. And so what sort of, you know, distances are we talking about when thinking about these things is it stuff that can develop very far away or very close because you say you need the heat and the metals but is that dependent on how close you are to the source absolutely so you know the the starkest line i would say that determines habitability is going to be that temperature the molten lava itself is well over a thousand degrees celsius nothing is ever going to survive in there for sure <laughs> But the upper temperature limit of life, as far as we know at the moment, is about 122 degrees Celsius. So anytime wow. you're cooler than that, 
in theory, you have a habitable environment. As long as there's liquid water, and we can talk about that part, um, as long as you're below that 122 degrees, you're probably okay. And that can actually be very, very close to some of these craters and, and active volcanoes, just as long as you're not actually in the molten lava itself. Right. Okay. So speaking about then active craters, you've actually been there and done this and sampled around active craters of lava for, for microbes. That's right. Yeah. I had the, the amazing opportunity to go to the Marum crater uh, in Vanuatu. This was at the time, one of the seven lava lakes known in the world. Um, and it's a place that for 20 years or so had been constantly erupting this active churning of lava and energy and elements and gases had created a very interesting and very specific environment that we thought microbes could inhabit. So we went there a couple different times to try to figure that out. Okay, cool. So um, were both times uh, from a purely scientific standpoint or um, yeah, were you there doing yeah. different things? They were quite different in very, uh, very fascinating ways. So the first one, um, I went with the, the adventurer, Sam Kosman. He was really interested in getting down into the crater to see what and feel what this bizarre, otherworldly environment was really like. Um, it was not as much of a, a scientific expedition, though we were able to collect some initial samples. The second trip, however, was a little bit more of, of the science expedition. It was sponsored by a documentary film crew. So the main focus was to get enough footage for a 60 minute short film. Um, but anytime you invite scientists out into the field, they're gonna to wanna to do science. So <laughs> I managed to campaign for uh, to bring a colleague, a German colleague who uh, is an amazing microbiologist, Jens Kallmeier. Um, and together we were able to collect enough samples to kind of start answering this question of if microbes can inhabit the interior and exterior of this active volcanic edifice. So it's probably quite beneficial to go that first time from more of an exploratory standpoint and to give you an idea of what potentially you could do. Because sometimes when we go to these, um, you know, really remote places, particularly if we go to sea, it might be the first time we're ever going to that location. And a lot of the science has to be done uh, well, uh, off the mark, you have to not make it up as you go along, but you're having to just roll with the situation you're given. And so this is probably a very unique opportunity to basically make your blueprints for the next time you went. That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, it was recess in a way. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> draw that comparison to deep sea work where I actually do, do most of my field work. Those are extremely expensive expeditions. And they often need to be hypothesis-based. You need to have a pretty good sense of what you're going to see when you get there. Um, otherwise, you know, you're just spending all kinds of money to poke around and see what you might find. That exploratory <laughs> part is essential, of course. But if you're trying to make the most of limited resources, you kind of need to, to have a good idea of what you're doing. So that first trip with Sam really was an exploratory trip. We were able to see what this environment kind of looked and felt like, and then kind of hone our specific questions for the next time around. And the uh, the other look you have there as well is you had, well, what was at the time a very reliable lava lake and very reliable volcanic setup. It, as you say, it had been active for many, many years doing the same thing in the same location. So it was well, well, well documented. I think it had been 
you know, it's summited a number of times. So the, the setup of actually working in there was familiar to people. That's right. Yeah, that was certainly helpful. Um, yeah, the, um, the operation for sort of getting down into the crater was pretty, pretty well established. And it had created what we think was this relatively stable microhabitat. So the, what fascinates me about Marum was that it was producing huge quantities of vapors. It was accounting for something like 10% of all of the volcanically produced water vapor um, and yes. also heavy metals like, like tin and silver, sulfur dioxide, something like 15% of the world's volcanic sulfur dioxide coming out of this one crater. So it was yes. really just an amazing cauldron that would probably have fueled some interesting biology for sure. And so what actual samples were you c collecting? Are you just taking the rock? Are you scouring something from the surface? And I'm guessing these were actually within the crater itself and not on the, the outsides? All or of the above. Both? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we, um, you know, one of the big questions was if we could get lava that had just erupted from the lake itself. The question there was how long does it take for these surfaces to become habitable environments? And we weren't really able to answer the question at Marum. We're thinking about that now in a different context, in a different volcanic system. But there it was tough. It just wasn't quite the right type of volcanic flow to allow for that sort of science. What we were able to do was sample a fumarole that was very stable and deploy this new technique to actually see which microbes were active in situ. So we added this solution that allowed you to see which microbes were building new proteins. And then we mapped that on the micro scale to see what proportion of cells are actually active in what appear to be completely sterilized uh, little grains of sand. Okay, well, so is this stuff you were doing in the field or that you then brought back to your lab to do? That's right, no, we were able to do it in the field. Um, wow. It was about a 24 hour incubation. So we went to sort of babysit it every few hours, make sure it was stable, <laughs> make sure it was happy. Um, and then the bulk of the actual microscopy and analysis happened back in the lab, of course. But it was the first time we were able to test this metabolic activity measurement um, in the field. And it was a very exciting place to try it. Yeah, so you could, because you're still relying on essentially live material, right? Um, I'm not a biologist, so the excludes my, my, my naivety in the subject. So is it the, um, the tissue or th that you're actually looking for? Yeah, so we're looking or, yeah. for all of these tiny active microorganisms. So all single cells, some of the most you know basic, smallest forms of life out there. And it's really important that we do the work out there because that is where it is best suited to its environment, of course. So the second that you take anything, any sort of living form away from its natural environment, it's going to change. The genes it transcribes are going to change. It's going to make different proteins. It's going to try to respond to whatever you're throwing at it, which is not what it was used to in very bizarre and unusual ways. So we needed to keep things as close to the native habitat as possible. That's why we had to do it while we were out there. Okay. Yeah. As you say, that atmospheric temperature and chemistry is so unique, literally even by the meter and or centimeter as you're going down into the crater. So you need to do, is there a way that you like preserve or lock that window in time? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So after this okay. 24 hour test, we embed them in resin and then sort of stop all of their biological function. So we fix them in paraffin 
and then you sort of solidify it in resin to preserve that spatial arrangement. And you were mentioning, you know, that yes, things do change on meter scales, centimeter scales. They actually change on smaller scales than that, on millimeter and micron scales. So we found that right. even just two sand grains beneath the surface of these fumaroles, things were much more, you know, much lower abundance of life, but the cells that were there were much more likely to be growing and more active. So the micro environments in and around these tiny sediment grains can be very, very different from one micrometer to the next. So literally just two grains below the surface. Exactly. Yep. Wow. Okay. <laughs> As you said, so that's um, that's some very detailed sampling that has to be done. It is. Yes, we needed to be very careful not to move anything um, and to make sure that our preservation technique kind of maintained that spatial arrangement. Uh, it was months and years of development to try to get to that point. Wow. So you also mentioned that um, one, of, one of the windows you couldn't really capture at, at Marum was that initial snapshots. So, but you mentioned there are other places, other volcanoes where potentially we can see that first initiation of growth. That's right. So at Marum, you know, it's this active lava lake where it's kind of spurting and bubbling up. And every now and then a glob of lava appears at your feet, hopefully not on your head. <laughs> and you can sort of sample that after a few minutes or hours or days. But other lava flows, the kind of more viscous ones that perhaps come out of the top of a mountain and flow down the side, those are going to be much more amenable to regular sampling. So a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Solange Duhamel, she's at the University of Arizona, has started this process last year. She realized that the eruption in Iceland was an amazing opportunity. She wrote a very quick grant, got the money to head out there as quickly as she could, and started sampling. So we're working with her to try to figure out how the microbes colonize these very new lava flows, but also critically how they change the mineralogy itself. It's a two-way street with the microbes and the minerals. And now that we've got the first few months of these samples, we're hoping to go back every year, every couple of years to keep this kind of microbial observatory going as long as we can. Wow. So you said the, the microbes can actually impact the mineralogy? We think so. Is that... Yeah. So this is, this oh, is wow. what we're trying okay. to test. But we, you know, we certainly know that microbes can interact with the minerals. They often get energy from the minerals. They sometimes get nutrients from the minerals. Regardless, they often, they like to attach to surfaces. So the question is if they structure minerals in interesting ways. And our theory, our hypothesis is that they do, that they colonize places where there are more gradients between different types of minerals. And that over time, they might degrade those initial gradients and maybe make new ones. We think that this could be a sort of um, way of finding signs of life even beyond Earth. You know, it's an agnostic biosignature that does not depend on the DNA, RNA, and proteins specific, perhaps, to Earth life, but could tell us more about how life in general shapes and is shaped by its environment. Vulcan Knowledge is supported by Geology for Global Development. It's a UK-based charity which champions the role of geology in sustainable development. Their aim is to mobilise and reshape the global geology community to help deliver the UN Sustainable Development Goals. 
You can find out more about the work of GFGD by visiting their website www.gfgd.org or following them on social media. On that line, you know, when we think about, you know, where are the places where, you know, life originated on Earth, a lot of conversation always steers immediately to the oceans and to these other environments that we just mentioned earlier, black, black smokers, hydrothermal vents. But this actually gives us an opportunity to study what's what might be happening on land in worlds where there may not be an ocean present. That's right. So I would make a, a pretty key distinction, though, that in order for life to originate, I think we definitely need a fluid medium. I think we need stable environments for certain biomolecules or proto-biomolecules to concentrate and, and work their magic. So the idea that life would originate sort of out of thin air on an active, on a new lava flow, that seems unlikely. But if life is already around, it can start to colonize, colonize these systems and change them. Um, you know, that's kind of more of what we're trying to study. Okay, so we're still looking for those ocean worlds then. <laughs> I think so. Yes, that's a good place to start. <laughs> good, good. So um, going to the, some of the research that you've done, you say most of your research is actually based on the seafloor um, in these expeditions. What sort of places have you been able to go to? Are these volcanic systems or do you mostly just focus on, uh, you know, areas of hydrothermal activity as opposed to like active volcanism? Right. So the spots that I'm most interested in in the ocean are methane seeps. So these mm -hmm. are um, sort of neither, actually. They're not hydrothermal. They are often at ambient four degrees Celsius temperature. And they're also not volcanic, but they are very similar in the sense that energy is coming out of the seafloor and it is fueling life that lives off of chemicals. So at hydrothermal vents, at volcanoes, and these methane seeps, life is getting its energy from the chemicals coming out of the seafloor. In our case, it's methane. In other cases, at hydrothermal vents, it might be the dissolved metals. So the kind of same principles of how life centers around these points of emission, how it makes use of the electron-rich subsurface fluids coming into the um, the electron-poor ocean, it's the same idea. So we're really interested in those gradients, again, and how energy can tap into that. Right, okay, but there's no heat in this environment. Well, I say there's no, no heat. So in comparison to hydrothermal systems and volcanic systems, it's not a, a thermal environment. That's right. Yeah, so it, with, with hydrothermal vents, the heat, of course, leads to the interesting chemistry, and the heat can speed up some of the biological activity, but it's not the heat itself that is, you know, fueling the life. It's the heat that then enables the chemistry. So if we already have the chemistry at this sort of interesting point without the heat, life is fine with that too. So we're interested in, in sort of decoding all of that. Right. Okay, great. So um, have you got any, um, any other plans to do some on land uh, volcanic work at all? Yeah. So we are hoping to get back to Iceland this coming summer. It will have been a little bit over a year since the volcano there was, you know, just started erupting. So we should be able to see already the beginning of microbes attaching to these rocks, maybe even starting to change them and break them down in, in very subtle and interesting ways. The best analog to the studies we're hoping to do have shown that 
microbes can attach to these surfaces within about five months. We are hoping to get a much, you know, more specific time resolution, maybe, you know, hopefully getting down to months or weeks or days even um, with kind of more sensitive tools that could allow us to see single cells on these surfaces. So, you know, again, this is a long-term study though, because the way that life transforms these minerals is something that goes on for millions of years. And we're really lucky to be able to see this. Yeah. yeah, you're you're having to do do this stuff in, in real time, you know, with, the, with a lot of experimental work, there's ways that we can speed up or change the environments we use to be able to see these things on a more, well, a human time scale, as opposed to, as you say, a geological time scale. So, and, and for That's probably it. for the sake of fu- funding agencies where you have to turn around research in a few years. <laughs> sure. And I think it's, you know, I, I would be interested to hear, hear your impression a little bit more from the, the geology side, because there, I would imagine, you know, through models and through experimental ways, you can accelerate the process. Biology doesn't really work that way. You can't speed along a microbe that is, you know, growing at, um, you know, doubling once every year, if that's what its environment allows for. So it is a little bit harder to kind of push things along, I'd say. Yeah, that exactly. At least within the realms of like volcanology and um experimental petrology and geochemistry we can usually rely on temperature as you just mentioned before the heat helps out the chemistry so it speeds up reactions it speeds up processes it makes lava um, a lot less viscous so things well things like processes like diffusion happen on time scales that we can observe over minutes hours days but as we start losing that temperature and you start to look at realms of say rather than magmatic temperature, like hydrothermal and more ambient temperatures, that's stuff that goes on for many weeks and for many months and potentially years. So I completely, completely understand. (laughs) Brilliant. So um, unfortunately, the one place that you're not able to get back to is Marum Crater, because it's one of the, the few, well, the few lava lakes we have and one of a couple that we lost back in 2018. That's right. Yeah, it's um, it's such an interesting phenomenon. These lava lakes, you know, they're around for for decades, seemingly stable, and then overnight they can disappear. Um, and that's what happened at Marum Crater. Um, I think yeah, now we're down. Yeah, just a single maybe. event, right? I think so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Like it can there can be hints, perhaps, at subsurface rumblings. Marum had various fissures coming in and out over the previous several years. Um, so they're certainly active in dynamic environments, but to just entirely drain away, um, it's, uh, it's just shocking. And <laughs> hopefully it'll come back, but, but who knows? And maybe others will open up. So the, yeah. the, the systems of these lava lakes, as far as I understand it, are still very mysterious to the volcanologists themselves and must be very confusing for the microbes trying to make a living around them. Absolutely. Even just within the same year, the uh, the lava, the Halimaumau lava lake at Kilauea right. drained away over the course of a couple of days. And then there was the very large eruption down on the rift zone. The volcano was completely quiet for about a, a year. And then the water table resurged and that old crater was filled with a lake of water. And then about a year later, I think, a new lava lake formed. Yeah. So crazy. I think the last the last <laughs> the last period between lava lakes was like nineteen twenty two and two thousand and eight. 
Wow. So there was about 80 years without a lava lake, then 10 years with, then two years without, and now it's back. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so as you say, these are very, very complex, dynamic environments. Yeah, they can't make up their mind. Yeah. So apart, apart from lava lakes and hydrothermal systems and lava flows, are there other environments on Earth where we can see these, you know, these extreme environments? Certainly, yes. So when we think about the most extreme forms of life, there are all kinds of dimensions we can approach that, that question from. There's really any environmental variable you can think of has a wide range, whether it's pressure, temperature, acidity, radiation. The ones I'm most interested in are at bizarre kind of geochemical environments where there's a lot going on and where the amazing innovation of microbial metabolism has the most to work with. At seafloor sites, these chemosynthetic sites with chemicals coming out of the seafloor, those are among the most interesting to me. There's so much going on. There's a flux, so there's energy coming in, meaning the microbes can take advantage of it. Things often change on moderate to long timescales to allow for evolutionary dynamics to happen. But then there are also places on Earth, on the land, that do this as well. Um, you know, places like the Daliol um, geothermal site mm. in Ethiopia that has all kinds of sulfur encrustations, um, very acidic waters. The Rio Tinto in Spain is another of my favorites. The pH wow, there okay. is about one or two, and it's just this like blood red liquid naturally formed because of iron leaching out of the rocks. All of these places are spots that life exists and exists in really interesting ways. Wow. So what, what I love about this, this field and your, and your line of research and your path is this full intersection across so many different disciplines and fields between geology, biology, volcanology, oceanography. There's so many different aspects to this and it must be, you must have to draw from so many different expertise. Absolutely. When you think about what a microbe is doing, you're collapsing huge scales of time and space onto a tiny, tiny point. In time, you're thinking about how life evolved over billions of years to create the machinery to make use of any given environment. And over space, it's often the fundamental forces of Earth from plate tectonics to the flux of heat through the mantle and through volcanic systems or wherever it could be to produce these very specific microscale gradients that these microbes can take advantage of. So to view both time and space as this kind of hourglass and this confluence of events that's coming together just at this one time and space to allow a microbe to survive and do these reactions, it's really fun to think about, but you do need to think broadly. I love that. Uh, I almost want that on a t-shirt. I don't know qu quite how that would look, but I, I'm picturing an hourglass. There's things going in and there's a single microbe in the center. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we'll have to get the graphic designers on this. There we go. <laughs> um, so as uh, as well as this, you actually do quite a lot for, you know, a, you know, public communication of this side of science. Um, in the past, you've done uh, some talks with National Geographic and a TEDx talk, if I'm right. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's it's just such a privilege to get to work in these environments and have all of the the tools at our disposal to try to understand them. And being able to share that is is of course what it's all about. Science in a vacuum does no one any good. Um, and I'm just trying to to get the word out about 
A, how exciting it is to do this work, sure, but how amazing it is that the microbes and the systems we study, how they work. This is still an enormous mystery that we're just at the beginning of trying to figure out how it all fits together. Well, and you're certainly not short of um, exciting visuals to share from the bottom of the ocean, from submarines, all the way to the the active insides of lava lakes. That is true. You know, I often sort of um, jokingly speak with other biologists who maybe study the charismatic megafauna of our planet. And while (laughs) animals are adorable and (laughs) do very interesting (laughs) things, um, you know, the microbes maybe aren't quite as photogenic. The environments they inhabit are hard to beat. That's for sure. So, so that's your way to compete with the penguins exactly. of the world. <laughs> Who needs a penguin when you have an exploding volcano? That's right. Yes. <laughs> or a microbe under a microscope. Even better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So what I want to wrap um, this up today with is just to hear um, something that's, you know, a memorable volcano related experience. What you've had. Of, of course, several, but is there a particular moment or experience that's happened along these journeys that just sticks in your mind? Yeah, I think that, you know, those, those two trips to Marum Crater and Vanuatu were the most amazing natural um, environments I've ever seen. And it's hard to really put it into words, the idea that you're sort of staring at the, the churning innards of the planet from this crater hundreds of meters above. And, you know, the the lava and the color scheme it provides is just something that is so distinct from all other natural environments. The fluorescent orange nightlight that it produces once the sun goes down is just something I'll never forget. So being up there at night with this glowing orange sky coming from a lava lake, you know, just over the lip of this crater from our camp, that was amazing. And and that particular site, that might not ever happen again. So I need to cherish it uh, while wow. it's in my memory. Yep. And so just on that point, you were actually, well, I guess you had to camp up towards the summit because you were doing this incubation and the active science on location. So you weren't hiking down at the end of every day. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah. Our camp for about one week each time was right on the edge of the crater. You walk over, you know, you got to be careful when you're walking around at night for sure. But about 50 meters over to the side is the sheer cliff, 300, 400 meters down straight to the lava lake. So we were there. the so, whole time. Yep. So it's a case of hold on to your sleeping buddy and no sleepwalking. That's right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's quite a quite an extreme environment to, you know, just stay in. You know, if, if you're out doing the science, you know, you're fully PPE'd up, you've got respirators and all those things. But if you're staying there for periods of 24, 48 hours, um, that, that's quite a, a long exposure to these environments. Sure. Yeah. I um, don't have this vest with me right now, but I was realizing the other day, it was the vest that I had up on the, the crater rim and I was trying to zip the pocket closed and it wasn't going. And I was you know, very confused. I looked at it and it's almost entirely corroded away because of the acid fog that forms all the time. So even just being there for a few days with this vest, now three years later, it's still corroding. Uh, it's still an wow. active memory of, of the extreme <laughs> nature of that condition for sure. So the lava lake may be gone, but it's still having its impact on your clothes. Exactly, by degrading my clothes, yes. <laughs> wow, well, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. I can only imagine what that must have been like. And even going back the second time, did it make seeing that any less 
spectacular or less stimulating? Not at all. No, I mean, (laughs) if anything, even more so because I knew how special it was. It's the, you know, it's like staring. We all, when we go camping, just love to sit there and stare at the campfire. It's like that, (laughs) but you know, times a million, (laughs) you're just mesmerized by this environment. And it's 1100 degrees Celsius and it's several hundred meters across. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. The world's biggest campfire for sure. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us um, today, Jeff. It's been a really interesting conversation. And I've, My pleasure. Um, I, but personally, I love these interactions between different areas of Earth system science, bridging directions across chemistry, biology, g- geology. So uh, it's been really good to talk about those. Absolutely. Thanks and, so much for having me. No problem. And um, best of luck in all your future uh, field work and research. I'll certainly be looking forward to seeing what comes. Me too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Volcanology, hosted by Sam Mitchell and produced by Hugh James with Anturus Education. This series was supported through the American Geophysical Union's Sharing Science Program, and you can catch more of our episodes and information on our guests on our website, www.volcanology.com, or follow us on social media at Volcanology through Twitter and Instagram.